if we back up a few verses, Galatians 5, 16 through 18 gives us sort of a, an additional view on the fruit of the Spirit that Eric just read for us. So Paul, backing up to verse 16, says, So I say, walk by the Spirit. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with one another, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And then moving forward to our main passage, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's a conflict between the, what the Spirit wants for us, what the Spirit does in our lives, and what the flesh wants, our, our sinful nature, our, our self-centeredness, our egotism, our narcissism. That conflict is very real in my life, and I trust that it's real in your life as well. Um, there's a conflict in the world between those two things, and we play a part in it. Um, I'm reminded in that conflict um, about the one time where... Donald Trump tweeted about my, a personal hero of mine, and uh, I don't mean this to be contentious because, you know what I mean, open with a sermon that's uh, about politics. That's the smartest way to operate. But so uh, early in the Trump administration, he, tr- he tweeted about um, Russell Moore. He's, uh, Russell Moore is an evangelical leader, author, um, and just a personal hero. He's a great, great guy. And so Trump was upset because this guy um, was not supportive of him, and then he called him um, a nasty guy with no heart. Nasty guy with no heart. And, uh, and so, of course, at that moment, all the news agencies called this evangelical leader and said, we would love you to come on our news show and talk about your response to the tweet. And so they said, Russell Moore, evangelical leader, proven godly guy. We have newfound respect for you. And so will you please now tell us what you think about the tweet? And so Russell Moore said, you know, uh, I've made my opinions known, but in terms of the tweet, nasty guy with no heart, I have heard worse things about myself every Sunday for my entire Christian life. And so I can definitively tell you, Anderson Cooper, CNN, I am in fact a nasty guy with no heart. Jesus reveals the sin in me and I'm grateful for God's grace. I felt like this was us, you know, everything with the, when, back in 2016, everything was so new. It was like, oh, tweet, yeah, yeah fighting, everyone's, and uh, this was early in that process, but I thought an, a wonderful opportunity for a Christian guy to essentially share the gospel or an aspect of the gospel of Jesus on, uh, you know, primetime CNN. Russell Moore exhibited something about the conflict um, that happens within all of us, which is to say God's grace is powerful in light of our desire to have retribution or our desire to have conflict in, in again, that the flesh and the spirit are constantly at war. Not to say, like, Russell Moore represents the spirit and other, I'm not trying to say, don't extrapolate it too far. But the, what I want to tell you is, right after that little season, Russell Moore came out noticing as an evangelical leader that a lot of people were leaving the church because of, like, how politicized everything's been for the last few years. And, um, and then there were a lot of people using terms like exvangelical and deconversion. And people were sort of, they had a Christian experience, but everything was so contentious. And maybe since COVID too and all that, like it's, it hasn't really died down at all. And so now we're definitively able to look back at that whole season of the church in America and see that there's like a movement of people losing their faith, finding a new identity in being exvangelical. 
and, and deconverting and, and deconstructing and reducing their faith. And so these folks, maybe, and maybe you're in that place where you're sort of hanging on by a thread with your faith and you're wondering if any of it's really true or if it's really just been social pressure that's kept you in your faith. Or maybe, maybe you feel like it's all just wish fulfillment, like it comes to us from Freud, where Freud said that all religious experience is really just our desire to wish that there's a God and, and wish that God's loving and wish that there is grace in the world. Like maybe you're in that place where you're tearing apart your faith and going like, is any of this really real? Are any of these experiences really about God? Are they just about me trying to please my parents or please people around me? And so now we've, we've, we've been through a season of conflict that I sort of tried to illustrate with my little story about Russell Moore. But now Russell Moore, as an evangelical leader, is saying, oh, okay, the new greatest objection skepticism about Christianity right now is about whether there's actually life change to be found at all through Christianity. Because everyone's tearing apart their faith and going, that wasn't really Jesus, and that wasn't really the Holy Spirit, and I wasn't really walking with God, and I didn't really have a community that supported me, and if I tear it all apart, I can, I can reduce it all down to just sociology or just evolutionary biology or like chem brain chemistry or whatever, and I can just say there's not really any power for life change in this Jesus thing. And so um, Russell Moore's saying the newest objection is there isn't really life change. There's actually no salvation. And, and maybe there is a kind of spiritual salvation, but there's not sanctification, which is sort of a fancy church term to mean actual growth in holiness and growth and change. So let's ask the question, like, is there actually growth and change to be found in knowing Jesus and by the claims of Scripture being empowered by the Holy Spirit? Well, Paul tells us something about that. Before, before I move into the passage and sort of our main points, I want to just illustrate it with one other thing, and that's that I was reading Christianity Today recently, and the title of the article was written by a sociologist from the University of Northern Colorado, and he said, the title of the article was, Meet the Duns. And in the thesis of the article, it sa he said, much has been made in the news media about the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, as the largest religious group in the U.S. today. And those are, they're called nuns because when they're asked about their religious affiliation, they mark none. And, and that group had been growing over the course of about 50 years, and now it's the largest group in America. When asked about their religious affiliation, they check none. And these are atheists, agnostics, skeptics, whatever. This is a big group of people, but they all mark none. But now since COVID and since 2016, there are, is a new group of people who still identify as Christians, and they're calling them the Duns, the done with church, done with institutional religion, done with, uh, maybe in the minds of some people who are done, putting my faith in somebody else's box. And I sympathize with you if you feel done. You feel done with the way church works and and now we have data on all the duns, or some of the duns. The duns have had thorough religious experience. They've, most of them, been involved in church leadership, peeked behind the curtain, and saw something that they didn't like, didn't expect, and so they're done. All of this is dancing around, maybe even solved by this issue of, is there actually like radical life change to be found from the Spirit's work in your life through the salvation that's brought by Jesus Christ. So today, we're going to do like a really clarifying thing that I hope is not too much for you for a Sunday morning, and then a very motivational thing. My hope is to talk about Christian growth and change, how it works. Like, how does it actually work? 
the fruit of the Spirit. Like, what is going on with that? And then I'd like to close with that second part, which is how you can have it in your own life. And I am worried. Anytime I have subpoints within my points, I always think, like, no one's going to pay attention to this. And if they do, they're not going to remember it. So I just want you to know, my first point has four subpoints, and we're just going to move quick. And this is posted on YouTube if you want to rewatch it by any, for any reason. So in verse 22, we see Paul, the Apostle Paul, saying, there is a fruit of the Spirit. So what do we know about Christian growth from, Christian growth from the fact that it is the fruit? That's the metaphor. It's not the only metaphor in the Bible that talks about Christian growth in terms of like botany and botanical metaphors. Here I'm thinking of Psalm 1 that says that if you meditate on God's word, that that person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season. So if you meditate on God's word, it's just like part of who you are. You'll be a Christian that is like rooted down deep so that you get to tap into water that that you otherwise could not have tapped into. And that will cause you to bear fruit in season. That's botanical growth. And I love this metaphor for Christian growth. And so Paul's main metaphor for us. If you're going to think about change and growth, you need to think about plants and fruit. What does that mean for us? It probably means that Christian growth and change is always going to be gradual, slow, and somewhat mysterious. There's going to be seasons where you're not sure if you're growing because maybe you're going through trials where God feels distant. But that's just like a tree that isn't bearing fruit. But would you say that during fall and winter that a tree is dead? No. There's seasons to life and there's seasons to spiritual growth and change. So the best metaphor in Psalm 1, the best thing you can be is a tree that's rooted. But even in Psalm 1, it's saying you will bear fruit in season. And so there's a seasonality to, um, to Christian growth. I'm thinking of like my son Soren is two and a half years old. And you, you, know, you don't ever notice that he's going from like little pipsqueak to like a little kid with muscles that can hurt you. You know what I mean? And like when he hits and stuff. Or like if he's running around like crazy and like he can break stuff now because he's getting big and he's a toddler and he's all like a little buff baby at this point. But you never notice the growth. You just, there's just little milestones that remind you that he's been changing and growing. Like I got, I was in the car the other day and I spilled something on myself and I was just like, ah, gosh, you know, and he didn't, he was in his little seat, you know, and he didn't know what was going on. He just heard me yell and he goes, it's okay, Dada. You're not mad. Take a deep breath. And I was like, don't use my tricks. Don't use my tricks back on me, kid. Okay. I invented take a deep breath. Okay. That was your, okay. So he goes, it's, it's okay. You're not mad. Take a deep breath. And I was like, oh, okay. Fine. Okay. Now my, the coffee I spilled on myself somehow is less relevant. But like little milestones where it's like, this kid's brain is like, developing, and I didn't notice it before, but now I notice. Your spiritual life is the same way. It bears fruit in season. There's going to be seasons of growth where you're like thriving, praying, reading. It makes sense. The love of God is, is coming into you and through you in a, in a rapid pace. And there's going to be other seasons where you're saying, I'm sure God's at work. I'm confident in my salvation in Jesus. And yet, I don't know what the heck's going on or what God's doing. And that's a normal thing for Christian growth if we use botanical metaphor. So trees, they grow, but they don't always create the same fruit or they don't always create fruit every season. 
immature Christians, like new baby Christians or maybe people who just haven't really grown a ton in their faith, will always have some sort of idealism that every single season of my Christian life needs to be better than the last and I always need to feel great. I always need to feel like I'm floating four inches off the ground by the Spirit's power. That's an immature kind of Christian belief that says God is not real and God is not at work if I'm not constantly feeling stoked. And here I'm, I'm leaning on a book called Critical uh, Journey by some uh, theologians and psychologists from the seminary that I went to, Fuller Seminary. And they wrote a book that just tracked like the spiritual journey of a lot of different people and their experiences. And what they found is there's a kind of thing that gets you from baby Christian to like childhood Christian. And most of that is just showing up. Like when you're a new Christian, just show up to church and just be around other Christians and listen to their advice and then worship with all of your heart and pray. And like most of the basic normal stuff of being a Christian will cause a lot of Christian growth. But there are, once you get into this like adolescent phase of Christianity, what got you there is not what's going to get you to the next level. And some of your faith practice needs to change a bit. Like you might need to study a little harder. You might need to deal with some of your emotional issues that are barring, keeping you from really connecting with the Lord. It might just take you other practices to develop for the next stage. And that feels like adolescence. And sometimes you just hit a wall where you're like, I'm five years into not feeling like I'm growing at all. And then God can get you through that wall with some very powerful work by the Spirit. And the reason I mention it is to say, some people never get past that wall and they just spend their entire life in childhood and adolescent spirituality. And that wall involves a lot of personal discovery, further submission to the Spirit of God, and a lot of talking with people who also love Jesus to get you through it. So immature Christians think it's always fruit season. And there's also a kind of burnt out person who doesn't really love God anymore, is just really angry at God or is tr trying to leave the faith that always, that says that all of faith is actually just winter. There's a person who says, none of this is actually God and I don't feel him and he hasn't given me the life that I expected and he hasn't been present in the way that I demand him to be present. And therefore, this is all just winter and I was just pretending the whole time. But both of them are overly simplified because God works seasonally and he grows you gradually and there's sometimes a mystery to how he's working in your life. So, Christian growth is gradual. Christian growth is also inevitable. Look at verse 22. The fruit is of the Spirit of God. And if we know something from Scripture about the Spirit, it is that every single believer in Jesus that is saved is also a Spirit-filled Christian. And because of that, the Christian growth process, sanctification process, growth in holiness, will be gradual, mysterious, but inevitable. It will always happen in the individual over time if you're a Christian. Because it's the fruit of the Spirit that indwells every single Christian. And you shouldn't be surprised if you're a Christian and you've been around long enough that there will be a lot of people who do a lot of really Christian stuff who actually don't know Jesus. And this is one of the biggest like, warnings we get from Jesus in Matthew. Matthew 25 is talking about feeding the poor and, 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 uh, and they're saying, like, we never saw you. And he was like, yo, I was there like but you didn't feed me and you didn't shelter me, you didn't help me. That's Matthew 25, a very confronting passage. Back in, they should have been listening because in Matthew 7, Jesus says some people are going to help those in need 
and do miracles in my name. But in the end, I will look at them and say, I never knew you. Like, that's real talk from Jesus. He's saying, you were very busy with Christian activity, but your heart wasn't for me. You never submitted your life to me. You never worshiped me and gave me the glory that I'm due. You just sort of made me fit into the life plan that you had. You, in a sense, Jesus is kind of saying, you just used me for the stuff that you wanted. You wanted to feel peace. You wanted to feel a sense of spirituality. And so you just used me for that. You did miracles in my name, even. Like the, the height of spiritual activity, a stinking miracle. And Jesus is saying, no, that wasn't, that wasn't you knowing me. And so all of us, any Christian, when they read that, you have to get very real and say, like, every person needs to go, do I know Jesus? Like, am I a Christian or am I just busy with Christian activity? Or let's borrow some advice from the deconstructed ex-evangelical Christian and say, am I here because there's social pressure? Am I here because this is like my family commitment? Uh, do some introspection. Am I here because I like feeling religious? Because it sort of makes me feel like there's order in life and that I'm better than most people because I sort of am doing this religious thing and other people are like heathens and I'm one of the good ones. Like any of us, they sound kind of religious, but in the end, there's a possibility that if we aren't followers of Jesus, following in his way, faith in him, that we could be busy with church stuff and not know Jesus. And so if you're that kind of person, the best way to find out, like, am I busy with Christian activity but not really a Christian? Ask a mature Christian who knows you and let them speak honestly and see what they say. Or you might ask other questions like, when I worship, is it like actually about Jesus or is it about chasing a particular kind of like peace, a sense of peace or feeling? So I'm not saying, I'm not trying to convince you that you're not a Christian, but I'm saying is over the long haul in your life, if you're not seeing Christian growth, then it's probably going to be difficult for you to be confident that you are a Christian. Growth is mysterious. It's confusing. Sometimes we don't know where God is in our life. And yet, over the course of time, the Spirit will do that work in us. But if you don't have that work happening in you, then you can't be, you can't be confident that you really know Him. And that might just be a moment to say, I'm going to repent. I'm going to believe the gospel. And even if I was saved here... And maybe, maybe, I, maybe I really did put my faith in Christ, but I'm just really struggling. There's no harm in you going to God and saying, God, I, I throw my life in your hands and I accept your grace. Third sub point is that Christian growth is internal. Look at all these traits. Verse 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are all internal things. And so I'll just make this point very quickly. They're not about skill sets. They're not about being good at the kind of things that you imagine good Christians are good at. And they're not even like personality traits. Like extroversion is not in there. Like in large part, our culture like rewards extroverts. Like nobody, except for introverts, nobody hates an extrovert, right? Like unless you're super introverted and you're like, just leave me alone, please. I need, my brain cannot function with all these extroverts around me. Like church, church loves an extrovert. Um, churches love pastors who are extroverts. Like businesses love extroverts. They're, they're social lubricant to some extent. Like they can keep a conversation going. But it's extroversion or introversion is not in there. Or like being just like super saccharine sweet and being a people pleaser is not in there. Like God's spirit can work through a crank who's growing in Jesus. 
and it's not a, sarcasm, like an absence of sarcasm is not in here either. But this, the work is not personality trait. And we might need to break those paradigms when you think of what a mature Christian looks like. You've got to look to Scripture first, not just to like the person that you think is like the super Christian. But they are internal, love, joy, peace, forbearance, like patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Okay, my last sub-point for this first point, first half of the sermon, is that Christian growth is symmetrical. And this is actually kind of a technical point, and I'm stealing this from Martin Luther, 1500s, and he wrote sort of a well-known treatise on like, what is the, the dang relationship between these fruit of the Spirit? And what are they, how do they function together? What are they really like in the Christian? And so he did like a deep meditation on it. And so um, a lot of this is, is taken from that. Um, I want to give you a, um, a video game illustration because I've been sort of re-falling in love with video games from my childhood. Did anyone else play NBA Jam? You guys ever play NBA Jam like on the Nintendo or like Super Nintendo? Uh, yeah, like old school uh, video games, I just have like, I don't know, it's just bringing back nostalgia. I, I like in the last month have been just watching YouTube videos of people playing video games from my childhood. I was like, I think I need to use my time better. <laughs> you know, it's like watching someone play Nintendo. Um, but like it's, it's, some of these retro games are cool because they're so simple. And of course, our brains are like so saturated and crazy. But like these games were, were neat. And if you are a video game person or you can kind of imagine this concept, they would always have like a football game or a sports game where certain players in the game had like stats. And you could see that they, if you bring the picture back up, like they had, um, like they were good at speed. Like I guess Charles Barkley was like only moderate in speed and they could do three points. And they had like their own stats. You're like, I'm going to play as like, I'm going to play as, as Michael Jordan. Actually in NBA Jam, the secret code, you could play as the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and that was my favorite one. So that was like the ultimate stats. But they're good, they're, like, they're fast or they're dependable or they're clutch or whatever and they have these little stats. And if you view the fruit of the Spirit as like a checkoff box, you might be missing the point, so says Martin Luther, about the way that these fruit function together. Because all of the fruit are symmetrical in this sense. For years and years, Bible commentators have noticed that Paul used the singular term for the word fruit. It's a singular fruit and multiple fruit of the Spirit, results of Spirit's work in us. And because that word is singular, Paul's point is clearly saying, the Spirit produces this fruit. And then he goes on to describe it with all those words. So you can't say like, for instance, oh, I'm a patience person and I'm a, a kindness person and I'm not so much a joy person or I'm not, it's not like um, some are absent and some are present and that's like, hey, you know, two out of three ain't bad. And yet God's work in our life is a little bit like I'm struggling with joy right now. And so think of it like the stats. I hope my fingers can kind of illustrate the point. Like, let's say this little stat is you. The fruit of the Spirit, because it's singular, is always going to move up in God's work of your sanctification. And in different seasons, God is going to work in different ways, but they will all always be present because it is the product of the Spirit. Like, your joy might feel zapped, but in the Spirit and in His work in you over time... There will be joy from the Spirit if it's from the Spirit because it's singular fruit and here's the description of it. And so God's going to move in you in different ways and move you to kindness and move you to forbearance and move you to self-control in different ways. You might have different stats, so to speak, but they're all going to be present so you can be in the game and play.
And therefore, because they're symmetrical, we need to lean on the Spirit to give us those things and show us an aspect of God's Spirit and who He is that can affect each of those things. But we cannot just focus on the ones we're really terrible at and say like, oh, that's my project for the year. Um, as if that, as if you don't also simultaneously need self-control, like it's not, your problem is deeper than just your lack of joy. And so if all you say is, oh, my only problem is that I'm low on joy. No, you need all of them and you have one place to go for them. And that is the spirit of God. He will keep them symmetrical and keep them growing through different seasons of life. I'll give you an example. Gentle patience people who are not faithful or courageous have a problem with the Spirit of God. There's a kind of person who's gentle and patient, but they're not, like, faithful, meaning they're not courageous. They don't say the things that need to be said. They don't stand up against problems and conflict. They're just gentle and patient. And so if you want to grow in being courageous and kind, you have to go to the Spirit to have both of those things. Because it might not be your personal inclination to have that kind of courage, because you're a nice, sweet person. And sometimes people look at you and go, oh, you're just so sweet. Man, God's spirit is really working in you. But you'll know that it's real spiritual growth when you start to have your kindness and your courage. Another example, self-control but not kindness is not from the spirit. Some of you are very self-controlled, rigid people. You show up to work, you read your Bible right, you're very structured. You are a very obedient Christian in terms of the requirements of the Christian life. But if you are not also kind, you know it's not from the Spirit. Because there's a way to have self-control that says, I'm that kind of person. I am a high-functioning person who has their life together. I am in control. But if you're not able to look at other people who struggle where the way, in the ways that you are strong, you'll know it's not from the Spirit. And if you want to be kind, patient, graceful with people who are, have faults and self-control, you know where to go. It's to the Spirit. And one last example. If you have peace in your life, but you are not good, then it might be because you feel great in life. Like you got enough time, you got enough money, you don't involve yourself in relationships that are taxing to you for the good of others, and so you have a lot of peace. But if your peace is not mixed with goodness, and here by goodness I mean ability to sacrifice yourself for others, to give to others, to love others until it hurts you and there's some sacrifice on your end, then your peace is just self-protection. Your, your peace is just security and an idolatry of comfort. But you'll know where to go, to go to the Spirit, if you want to have goodness and peace. When the Spirit produces the fruit, it's genuine in all of the fruit of the Spirit. Okay. And lastly, to, for clarity on the way these things work together, they are interdependent. They're symmetrical, they're working up, and they're interdependent. And my only example here is just um, a metaphor from Martin Luther. He says, the graces of Christianity are all connected together and mutually dependent on each other. That is, they are all linked together and unified, or, and united one to another and within another as the links of a chain, as one does, as it were, hang on another from one end of the chain to the other so that if one link is broken, all fall to the ground and the whole ceases to be of any effect. 
if you're a really peaceful person, but you have no patience for anyone else, Martin Luther is warning you that it's going to make this whole thing fall apart. And you have to lean on the Spirit, not just on your personal strengths and inclinations. You have to go to the Spirit so that every part of that chain link holds together so you can be, in, in effect, effective for your Christian life. And you know this, right? Uh, let's use like failing pastors as the example. This week, t- starting today, the Southern Baptist Convention is having their national or maybe even global conference in Anaheim at the Anaheim Convention Center. And my wife was going to go to hear one of the gals um, that's a great Bible teacher to speak. And then we we're like, in light of all the drama with the Southern Baptist Convention this week, let's not go in case like something really negative happens um, with like just all the turmoil because a report came out a, a, a week or two ago that there's just been a lot of like abuse from pastors hidden for years, years and years. And it's like, it's dark, it's, it's, um, it's very frustrating and it makes me, I read the report from a third party agency that studied the leadership and I was just like, this makes me nuts. Like, the way church can just fail. Like God's people filled with the Spirit and still like even institutionally like so messed up. And so it's happening this week and when pastors and church leaders fail, it reminds you that it only takes that one link to become a a very hurtful kind of Christian. Like people depend on you to have the fruit of the Spirit. And when they have a life that depends on you, that needs you to be loving and patient and kind and have all those, that, that, the aspects of the fruit, and then you are absent one of them, it, it can just be so destructive. And we see it with church leaders and we experience it in our own Christian life. And so may we see how important all of the fruit is, that they are all dependent on one another, like the chain. Uh, otherwise, it all falls down. So how do we have it in our Christian life? I'll go quickly. Verse 17 the work that the Spirit does in us has to affect our affections, has to change our affections and our desires. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. So real change has to get to what you love. And so if you're the kind of person, when you read the fruit of the Spirit, you immediately go to, what behaviors should I change? then know that Paul's going a little bit deeper. He's going to like the heart behind the sin and saying, address what you you have affections for. My surface sinful behavior of a lack of patience with other people is rooted in a self-righteousness that says, I love being good. I see myself as righteous. I see myself as savvy or more valuable than others. And that's a heart, and you need to desperately go to the Spirit of God to change that heart affection to say, God, help me to love myself less, to see the reality of my sin, and to love you more. Real change always addresses the desires, and that might affect your prayers. Instead of praying, God, help me to stop doing this, help me to stop being so insecure when I'm around my family. Or help me to stop be, uh, gossiping so much because I like feeling important in, in the know. Like, it, instead of just praying the surface sin, start praying, God, my heart loves fill in the blank way too much. And I pray that I would be so filled with joy in you that I would not need that other thing. That I would love this other thing less and start loving you more. It has to address the affections. Secondly, 
If you want to have spiritual growth and change in your life, it has to be a process that's relational. And the metaphor Paul uses is a walk. Look in verse 16. So I say, uh, walking like this, not walk like this. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah, you can, some of y'all heard walk, but I was talking about walking. That's also a powerful metaphor for God's goodness, but just in like the fact that the food that comes out of it is always tasty. Okay, so I don't know why that came to mind. Okay, so we have to walk with God. Now I can't get it out of my head. Okay, we have to like stroll with the Lord uh, in, in relationship. Verse 16, so walk by the Spirit and you will not, and you will not gratify the de- desires of your flesh. And some of you might know this from like friendship. Um, if you're distant from a friend for some time, the friendship can f- kind of get dry a little bit. Where you go, like something has to remind you of why you're friends again, and then you reconnect, and it's like old times, and you go, "I love this friend." Do you ever have that experience? Or in your marriage, like there's seasons of dryness in your marriage, and and then like you have. That's why date night. Like that's why everyone has date night or whatever. And like when I was single, I couldn't figure out like why is everyone so obsessed about date night? You sleep in the same bed, you see each other all the time. Like why do you need an extra date night on top of it? But now that I'm married and with a kid, I realize like oh, part of it is getting away from the kid, and the second part is like. You have to just intentionally get in front of each other and go like, we love each other. I love your sense of humor. I'm reminded of, your, of how good you are because we're together and, and have a meal together. That's how it is relationally. It like rekindles a kind of friendship or a kind of affection. And we have to have that with the Lord. So spiritual practice does play into this. It's not just a cognitive belief effort. We have to walk with God so that we like have him with us. Have his word with us. Talk with him, sing. Whatever strategies you have to, ha- to walk with the Lord, it needs to be a constant thing. That's, that's the metaphor here. It's not just stand and talk. It's going on your life together with him. So it has to be relational and kind of constant. But not just that. Paul, in verse 25, continues the metaphor. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So now we're intentionally living the pace of our life with God's Spirit. The pace of work, the pace of like what I commit to needs to be allowing me to be in step with the Spirit. Or at least that's how I interpret it and I sort of submit that to you. That like there's a way to be so busy with the commitments you've made that you're in a sense not quite in step with the Spirit because you haven't just, you don't have any bandwidth for anyone. Not to mention the Lord. You have to keep in step with Him. And I'd like to close with this. Be free. So if you want to have spiritual growth in your life, love what the Spirit loves, walk by the Spirit, and have a sense of freedom that comes from knowing Jesus. Verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So this is a funny part of the passage because Paul breaks the metaphor. This is bad grammar, I guess. And I always got like C minuses in like English and stuff. And so I don't, I don't know perfectly like what, what's wrong with th- this idea, but I've heard that it's like bad English but good theology, or, or, or good theology but bad grammar, because he's going with the metaphor of fruit, and then he sort of switches to the walk thing, and then, uh, and then thirdly he goes, um, now we're talking about the law. You're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. And so this is a whole thing with Paul and throughout the New Testament, where the law makes us slaves to the law. And if your way of getting to God is through the law, through your good works and through your own righteousness and your own behavior, then you're a slave to that performance. But the opposite of that is God's grace, which makes us free. And so if you're walking with the Spirit, 
the goal of it, the result of it, the fruit of knowing Jesus is freedom because you are no longer under the law, but now able to bear fruit and walk with God in freedom of his grace, in the freedom of his grace. So I want to leave you with an illustration of it that I might have shared before. But Langdon Gilkey was a, a, an author who wrote about an internment camp that is called the Sheng Tung Compound. It's also the name of his memoir. And uh, Langdon Gilkey was imprisoned in Japan around World War II. I'm sorry, in China by the Japanese around World War II because he, was, he graduated from Harvard and then he went to go teach English in China and then the Japanese invaded that part of China. And so he's in an internment camp. And the camps had all of the cruelty and evil that you would expect. But what Langdon Gilkey records in his memoir is that everyone had different belief systems in the camp. And everyone, almost everyone, used their belief system to justify their own self-centeredness and egotism and, and injustice and, and evil. So the other, the other inmates in the camp, if they were religious, because there were other missionaries there, and they seemed to have used their religion to justify their own self-centeredness. And there were people who were atheists and secular, and they had like an innate view that like humanity was just so good because we live in the modern world. And that that was all broken apart and they used their agnosticism and atheism to justify their own self-centeredness. And he says that it was almost like independent from any belief system, everyone was just so tempted when food got scarce and when it was every person for themselves that they used their belief system to get what they wanted for themselves. Bringing out cruelty and selfishness in the inmates as well as their captors. So in his memoir... He says that he had an extreme disillusionment with humanity as he felt, that he felt as he faced the reality that deeply opposed his beliefs in the innate goodness of human people, except for there was one Christian guy, Eric Little, who was a Scottish missionary to China. And Eric Little is the, the subject of um, Chariots of Fire and that movie. And so he, he won Olympic gold, and then later in his life, towards the end of his life, was a missionary in this area. So Langdon, uh, Langdon Gilkey writes in his memoir that Eric Little was the only person in the camp who had a constant stream of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, when it seemed like nobody else had it. And so Eric Little uh, seemed to have held his life with enough of an open hand that he had something to offer other people, even when he could have died at any moment. And so um, Eric Little became sort of the mentor for all of the teenagers within the camp. He like, he like started a youth group in the internment camp. It's like the most depressing youth group you ever had. It's like, let's play kick the dirt. I don't know what, what youth group game you play in that youth group, but like he mentored the teenagers. He seemed to have a charity and a sense of love for all the different people who were struggling within the camp. Eric Little died with a brain tumor two weeks after his diagnosis in that camp, and that was where his life ended. And I'd like to read you a quote in reflection from Langdon Gilkey about this Christian man who expressed the fruit of the Spirit in that camp. So Langdon Gilkey writes, Religion is not a place where the problem of man's egotism is automatically solved. Rather, it's there that the ultimate battle between human pride and God's grace takes place. Human pride may win that battle, and then religion can and does become one instrument of human sin. But if there is a confrontation of the self with God's grace, and the self does meet God in his grace, and so surrenders to something beyond his self-interest, then Christian faith may prove to be the thing that the human race needs. So Gilkey is 
now as a professed Christian saying, everyone needs this interaction between God's grace and their own egotism, especially when things get tough. And so I started the sermon by talking about how tough the last few years have been. And, and again, I hope it, it's just an illustration, not a political statement. So I hope it's not distracting for you. But then I also brought up another painful, distracting thing, which is to say that there's like major institutions in our country that run church that have like major oversight, injustice, and sexual exploitation that makes me want to scream and pull my hair out and even tempts me to say like, what if we just blow this whole church thing up and everyone just like watches church online and just connects with God themselves? And yet as soon as I say that myself, I go, what a pitiful, sad existence that you would have if you abandoned church. And I, and I mentioned even an article that's talking about the duns and people walking away from God and walking away from church because they're just done with all of it. And all of it sort of like comes to a point that I think Gilkey helps us to say there is man's sin and man's egotism and all of our problems and confusion and mystery with God that if it's confronted with the grace of God and we listen to Paul, then there's freedom, freedom from under the law, freedom from being subject just to our own personality traits because God is forming us to be different kinds of people. So now no one can say, I'm bitter and hurting, but that's just who I am. Because if you have the Spirit, God is promising to do that work in you, to heal the bitterness, or to bring you joy, or to bring you kindness, or to work in you something that is a supernatural peace that you would never otherwise have unless you knew Jesus, because that is the fruit of the Spirit. Promised, guaranteed, smashed into the heart of anyone who repents, turns their life to Jesus and says, God, I want you. I want you to change me. I want you to make me into a new kind of person. And scripture tells us that he will continue to do that work until the day Jesus returns. Tim Keller, who's a, another personal hero of mine, tweeted, or he didn't tweet, his Facebook, I don't even have Twitter up, so I don't know why I even said that. But like the, the Facebook post this very morning where he said, apathy is the biggest problem for Christianity and the more, more of a problem than atheism. Sometimes Christians get all up in arms about atheists and our secular culture. But like, I agree with Tim Keller when, when I observe that the biggest problem with Christianity and even in my life is that I don't live like the Spirit of God is in me. I don't trust that the Spirit of God is working in me. I live with the kind of apathy and pray with the kind of apathy. We worship with the kind of apathy where we don't functionally say the Spirit of God is here working in us and doing something powerful. And yet, Paul tells us, he lists it off. And that's why he mentions so many words in our passage. Look at all the things that God's Spirit does in us. And I guess my encouragement to us is, let us live our lives with the it factor, change agent, power of God's Spirit that is actually in us. And let us be those kinds of people. Let me pray to that and then we'll worship.